Hi, and welcome back to the Magical History Tour podcast. I'm Hollis, your tour guide, and today we'll take a trip back to the British colonies in America, taking a look at the culture and way of life. We'll also sneak a peek at the Salem witch trials. So let's get started. Now, by 1750, there were over a million colonists, and by 1775, there were about 2.5 million. In the old world, land was scarce and expensive, while labor was plentiful and cheap. It's the opposite in the new world. Land is there for the taking, but labor was costly. The more children you had, the more hands you had to help you on your farm later on. So colonists tended to marry and start families at an earlier age. The birth rate is much higher than in Europe. In England, the average age for marriage for women was around 26, but it dropped in the new world to around 20. Men also married younger in the colonies. Women who married earlier had time for about two more pregnancies, so the birth rate is really high. You also had a lower death rate in the colonies. Of course, not the first couple of years of settlement, especially in Virginia and Massachusetts Bay. Obviously, that was a little different. But once they got settled after that, apart from childhood mortality, men could expect to reach 70 and women nearly that age. Part of the reason is a lack of famine, more plentiful firewood, I mean they are in the eastern woodlands, and a younger nation as a whole. In 2022, the average age of Americans was 38.9. The average age in America in 1790 was 16 years old. It's pretty young. So we are a very much younger nation as a whole. Now, since they were so scattered, they were less susceptible to disease than those in the old world. Although that is going to start changing as the colony's population centers begin to grow. Now, if you look for men and women's roles at the time period, typically men were responsible for field work, Women were responsible for the house and garden, taking care of the children, things like that. And the cultural ideal was subordination of women to men. Married women couldn't make contracts. They couldn't own property. They couldn't vote or hold any kind of political office. Women who were widowed had a bit more social authority as they often ran their husband's businesses or trades. So sometimes if your husband passed away, you decided not to get married so that you could have a little more authority over your finances and things like that. Now, since the shortage of women in the early years of the colonies made them very highly valued and the Puritans had an emphasis on a well-ordered family life, they will put laws into place to protect women from physical abuse and allowing for divorce in certain situations. They also had a little greater control over property that they brought into a marriage or that was left after a husband's death and if you remarried. But still, the basic status of women was subordinate to men. Now let's take a look briefly at the southern colonies specifically. In the early years, of course, until about, say, 1700, you had a really high rate of mortality in the south and a chronic shortage of women, which meant that the population could only be sustained by immigration. In the south, you also had diseases like malaria and dysentery, things like that that come around in warmer climates, that's going to lead to a higher mortality rate. In Virginia, at first, there are a lot more men than women. The ratio at the time was around two to three white males for every female. Now, that meant that many men never married, though nearly every adult woman did. Family ties, because of this in Virginia, are not as close, and there's not as much social stability in the Chesapeake, especially because of those high mortality rates. Most of the women who were early arrivals to the Chesapeake tended to die before the age of 50, while their counterparts in New England will live a lot longer. Looking at the geography of New England, you have really long, cold winters and very short growing seasons in rather rocky soil. 
Now, generally, it's 20 to 30 degrees cooler than in Virginia. So those colonists who were in like Massachusetts Bay, the Pilgrims and the Puritans, were less likely to get those lethal diseases that the Southerners had issues with. That's going to mean that New Englanders had a longer lifespan. Twice as many children survived infancy in Massachusetts as did in Virginia. You also had larger families in New England, because more of them lived, and a more rapid natural increase in population. I thought this was a really interesting fact when I heard it. New England was actually the world's first society, the world's first society, where it was actually common for people to have known their grandparents because people are living longer. Now, eventually, though, people in the South will begin to build up immunities to some of these things, and the the ratio of men to women will even out a little bit more, and family sizes will gradually begin to approach those in New England. Now, in the southern colonies, the big differences between the rich and the poor start becoming more and more pronounced as time goes on. Uh, The very wealthy will become kind of a class apart from their social inferiors, as they would call everyone else. We generally think of this time period as very heavily steeped in religion because we think of things like the pilgrims coming over and the Puritans and their escaping religious persecution, stuff like that. Those are the most prominent stories of that time period. But in the southern colonies, it's a little bit different. Many Americans were not active in the church as much as we would like to think. One estimate holds that as few as 1 in 15 colonists were church members. In Virginia, after 1642, Governor Berkeley will decree that his colony was going to be exclusively Anglican, so Church of England. He ran out a lot of the other groups. He ran Quakers out and Puritans and anyone else that happened to be in Virginia that wasn't an Anglican. And eventually, Anglicanism is going to become the established church throughout the South, even in Maryland at one point where Catholicism had been the main religion. Looking at the economy, tobacco, of course, is the staple crop in Virginia and Maryland. Rice, sugarcane, and indigo grown in South Carolina. Pine trees are also used in the Carolinas to build ships and make tar, and they had a really early cattle industry there as well. With regard to labor, voluntary indentured servitude accounted for about half the white settlers outside of New England. Slavery is going to evolve rather slowly in the South, as I mentioned, because of this. However, by the 1660s, colonial legislative assemblies had legalized lifelong slavery. Growth of the tobacco production was impossible without growth in the slave labor force, they felt, as tobacco demanded close attention and a lot of hard labor. So by 1770, you had more than a quarter of a million slaves in Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina, and their numbers were expanding at double the general population. Now, South Carolina was a slave society from the first. The most valuable part of the early Carolina economy was Native American slave trade. They would go down to Florida and kidnap Native Americans from the missions that the Spanish had set up in Florida and bring them back and sell them into slavery. Now, eventually, planter preference will turn to African slaves because rice production was growing. And West Africans had a lot of experience in agriculture and they made better rice workers. Indigo, the blue dye, also becomes an important crop as well. Now Georgia, which was a state that started out prohibiting slaves, as you learned in the last podcast, also became an extension of the Carolina Lowcountry slave system. Rice plantations needed at least 20 laborers 
and usually had 50 to 75 enslaved. This is going to lead to large black majorities in the Lower South, and by 1770, there were almost 90,000 African Americans in the Lower South. They made up about 80% of the coastal population of South Carolina and Georgia. Now let's take a brief look at New England. I already mentioned that New England had a much longer lifespan. New England is also primarily a society of small family farms that produced a variety of foods. You didn't really have huge plantations. Someone might have a couple of servants. There were African slaves, working mostly as domestic servants in larger towns, but the smaller farms meant that they grew food to feed themselves, and they might grow a little surplus to sell in town. Mercantilists in England aren't as interested in New England as they are in the South because of that. In fact, they found New England to be really more competition than anything else. So because they couldn't get rich on the farms meant that New England had to diversify, and we talked about England diversifying earlier. You had things like shipbuilding, whaling, fishing, and unfortunately slaving, among other things. Now, looking specifically at the Puritans, they stressed the importance of a well-ordered community. What they would do is grant townships to the leaders of congregations, and then the leaders of the congregations would distribute those pieces of land according to the status and wealth in the parishioners, basically. So they would say, we have Uh, 20 families in our church community, so I'm going to divide this land up and we're going to give the best land to this guy because he has higher status, that sort of thing. It was actually a crime for people of lesser class to copy the fashions of their betters in Puritan colonies. In Connecticut, for example, which was kind of an offshoot of a Puritan colony, there were 38 women arrested at various times, not all at once, obviously, for dressing in silk. Obviously, they could afford to dress in silk. They had bought it, but their social standing in the community did not warrant their wearing it. So the Puritans really believed that social hierarchy was ordained by God and you should stay in the social class that you were in. They tended to cluster all of their homes near a meeting house, which was in the center part of the village. They also punished sin very harshly because they believed that the whole community would be punished if they left a sinner to their evil ways. So they had these books filled with regulations that some of the things we might consider strange today. Now you had things like your usual Sundays, The Puritans forbade any activities that were not related to God or worship. You couldn't play games on Sunday or engage in just chit-chat. You couldn't whistle on Sunday. You couldn't break into a run or walk in a garden, even. Married couples were forbidden to embrace or kiss in public. In fact, one sea captain, after returning home from a long voyage, kissed his wife on the threshold of their cottage. Someone saw them and he was fined. Uh, If you were considered a nagging wife, you might spend a few hours in the stocks or the pillory on market day if your husband turns you in for being a nagging wife. These were things called the blue laws. And in 1695, there was a Salem law that punished adulterers by requiring them to sew an A cut from cloth on their everyday garments. If anyone's read The Scarlet Letter, that's where this comes from. But it's interesting because this law that made you wear an A on your clothes is a softening of the traditional practice, which was actually to have been branded with a hot iron. You could be branded with a T on your forehead for thief 
or an A for adulterer, could be on your cheek, could be on your hand, depended, but it was definitely a softening of that traditional practice of branding. Now, education was important to Puritans. In 1647, Massachusetts required any town that had 50 or more people in it to support a public school. And if it had 100 or more people, they had to support grammar school that taught Latin because they established Harvard in 1636. And to get into Harvard, you had to have Latin. So Connecticut had similar laws. Literacy was higher in New England than anywhere in North America and in most of Europe at that time. Unfortunately, girls were excluded from most education, though they were usually taught to read because you had to read your Bible every day. The Puritans are thought to be very strict and sober, but that's not really the case in all things. They tended to wear fairly colorful clothing. Uh, People imagine them in the black and white outfits from Thanksgiving, but that's not actually the case. They listened to secular music and they drank alcohol fairly regularly. Their guideline, however, was moderation in all things. So being drunk was not being moderate and you could be arrested for it. As I mentioned, adultery was a crime, but Puritans celebrated relationships within marriage. Now, over time, you had a gradual erosion of religious commitment, and more and more children and grandchildren of Puritans could not testify that they had had a conversion experience. Well, a lot of people hadn't had them, and a lot of people aren't, you cannot join the Puritan church officially and vote and do all these things if you haven't had a conversion experience. So to help with declining church membership, the Puritan ministers came up with something called the halfway covenant. That meant that baptized children of church members could be admitted to a halfway membership, which meant that if your parents had been baptized and you were grown, but you had not had a conversion experience, you could be kind of a partial member, which allowed you to do things within the church, but it did limit you because you couldn't vote and you couldn't take communion. Now, looking at the economy of New England, just briefly, New England merchants went everywhere, including China and back to Europe. They traded all over the continent, all over the globe. They had several routes in which they carried goods from one place to another, uh, trading as they went for what they needed. This was called the triangular trade, and it's because uh, it formed a triangle from North America to Europe, down to Africa, and then back to North America. Several of these routes did include picking up slaves from Africa and transporting them to the southern colonies to be sold. Local communities in New England were governed by Puritan congregations. We talked about how communal land was allotted to each church and then divided among the church members on the basis of status and seniority. Churches or meeting houses were built and taken care of through taxation. So if you lived in a Puritan community, your taxes went to the main government, which took care of the meeting house and took care of everything else. Now, there was little distinction between religious and secular authority because the adult male church members were the freemen of the town. They were the people who could vote they were the people who could run for office. But Puritans experienced an interesting mix of freedom and repression. Local communities had considerable autonomy, but there was a loophole in their charter, so they were able to basically govern themselves. So they had a lot of autonomy, but they're still bound by the restrictions of the Puritan faith. 
They exiled dissidents if they disagreed with anything that the Puritan father said. They banned Anglicans, Baptists, and Quakers. Now, Quakers would often try to come around and preach, and they would often be whipped, jailed, and occasionally executed for their trouble. Now, after the English Civil War and the religious excesses of it, Charles II will order a stop to religious persecution in Massachusetts. They passed what's called the Toleration Act in 1689. And that act was resisted by Puritans because they did not like the idea that they couldn't kick people out or jail them if they weren't the right religion and things like that. But under pressure, they rather reluctantly allow other faiths to practice in the area openly, especially after the Massachusetts Royal Charter in 1691 is put into place. And that required toleration of religious dissenters. And it also based the right to vote in public elections on property ownership rather than church membership. Still, only Congregationalism continued to be supported through taxation. Congregationalism is the Puritan church. They were called the Congregationalists. And if you live there, even if you were an Anglican or a Baptist or nothing at all, your taxes went to support the Puritan church. Now, as towns grew too large for the residents, new towns would be created and they would build a meeting house elsewhere. Basically, the further out you got, the harder it was to get in to meeting every Sunday and for meetings and things like that. And so gradually, as the town got larger, you might have a group who lived sort of further out say, well, we want to split off and build our own meeting house. And so that's how you get Salem and New Salem and things like that. Even after restricting the few Native Americans that were left to small reservations, the Puritans were running out of room. Now, the charters of Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay, Rhode Island, and Connecticut were actually very lenient. It gave them a large amount of self-governing power, as I mentioned, and they pretty much functioned independently of the crown. They did what they wanted in most ways. In fact, while Cromwell ruled the Commonwealth of England, the New England colonies pretty much ignored every directive he sent, even though he's a Puritan. Massachusetts even minted its own coin. That was something that only a sovereign had the right to do. Even after Cromwell, when Charles II came to power, Massachusetts continued to make coins illegally until he finally took them to court over it and won his case. So as you can see, Massachusetts is fairly rebellious as a colony and will remain so and be a big hotbed of rebellion during the actual revolution. Now, after Charles's death in that next year, 1685, James II, his brother, will ascend the throne, and James attempts to exert royal control over the colonies. Charles would send directives here and there, but James was a little bit of a micromanager, and he would get angry when they didn't do what he asked them to do. He ended up abolishing the New York Assembly, giving power to the royal government. Other colonies kept their assemblies, but they were frequently challenged. And then he decided to do something completely different. He abolished the charter governments of New England and New York and New Jersey. And he combined all three of the colonies into one big colony that he called the Dominion of New England. Now, the royal governor that he appointed will impose Anglican forms of worship in Puritan areas, and he got rid of any local autonomy that they had. So he basically told the Puritans, you came all the way over to the New World to be Puritan, and now you're going to have to be Church of England again. And they did not like that. And James's similar actions in England itself 
will alienate him from the people. And eventually what you have is called the Glorious Revolution. The Glorious Revolution is when James II gets removed from the throne without any bloodshed and they replace him with his daughter, Mary, and her husband, William of Orange. So that's when William and Mary come to the throne. When they hear what is happening in England with the Glorious Revolution, called so because there was no bloodshed, the colonists will rebel against all the authorities that had been put into place by James. The new monarchs will agree to dismantle the Dominion of New England. William and Mary will also end proprietary rule in Maryland. And the affected colonies were allowed to revive their assemblies and return to traditional self-government. They became New England, New York, and New Jersey again, and not the Dominion of New England anymore. Now, William and Mary did combine Plymouth and into Massachusetts Bay and made it one royal colony. And after 1691, the governor of the colony was no longer elected. He was appointed by the crown as were the colonies of Virginia, New York, and North and South Carolina, and New Hampshire. So this is going to be a difficulty for Puritans because they felt that God had led them and given them a mandate to rule themselves and rule over Massachusetts Bay. But it's obvious to many of them that they're being punished and they're trying to figure out what did we do? What sin are we missing that we got in trouble with? And so it's around this time that you have the Salem Witch Trials. Now, all in all, 342 women in New England were accused of witchcraft over time, not just in this time period I'm talking about. Overall, 342 New New England women were accused of witchcraft since they started New England. Most of them were unmarried, were childless, were widowed, or they had assertive personalities. Most of the cases were dismissed. There was not enough evidence, but in Salem, In 1692, a panic arose, and before it was stopped in 1693, 20 people had been executed. Now, some people think it was a reflection of social tensions. They suggest that there was a lot of suffering caused by the loss of the charter that guaranteed self-government. You know, they're not getting to rule themselves. You have the crown getting involved. All of these things helped to account for the remarkable hysteria that convulsed parts of Massachusetts. Beginning in January of 1692, two young girls of Salem fell ill. They had fits of screaming. They were crawling around and making really weird sounds. The doctor, when he was called, could find nothing wrong with them. So he felt that they must have, and he made the comment that they must have been bewitched by Satan. Now, this was not something that was laughed at. It was taken very seriously. And once the word witch was spoken, the girls began to accuse easy targets of enchanting them. The kind of people, typically, who had few friends to defend them. One was a slave, Tituba, who had come from the West Indies, where voodoo and other practices were known to be rampant. Another was an older woman who might have been senile. And a third was an 88-year-old man who was kind of a notorious crank, and he had been an adulterer in the past. Now, eventually, better established people start being named as witches. Most of them had been on the wrong side of a political battle, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Still, petty animosities cannot account for the fact that some of Massachusetts Bay's most distinguished men participated in the witch hunt. People came from Boston to take part in it. Eventually, 139 people were accused. 114 of those were actually charged, and 19 
were hanged. One man was pressed to death. To be pressed to death, he would have a plank, a wooden plank laid on him, on top of him, and stones would be heaped onto it until he couldn't breathe. Now, it's kind of a technique that they were trying to get information out of him. He was refusing to plead either innocent or guilty. So the thing is, if he pled guilty and was convicted, he would forfeit all of his property and his heirs would lose their claims as well. If he pleaded innocent, he's usually not believed, ends up being convicted and gets hanged. So he would not, he just, he would not plead guilty or innocent and they kept trying to get him to. So he ends up being pressed to death. And his last words were said to be more weight. His name was Giles Corey. Now Salem was the last mass witchcraft scare in the Western world. And it should be noted that many of the people that are involved in the accusations and in the persecutions later admitted that they were wrong and they asked forgiveness of God and of their community. They accepted punishment for their sin. Now they didn't admit to being wrong in believing in witchcraft but they did take responsibility for falsely accusing people or for having accepted inadequate evidence in reaching a decision of guilt or innocence. There has been lots and lots of theories about what happened in Salem to cause this really weird anomaly. One of the theories is that the girls had accidentally ingested a microbe called ergot. Ergot is a fungus or a bacteria that grows on rye in certain conditions. And the Puritans did grow rye. And if you look at the weather conditions in that year, it is possible that ergot was on the rye that many Puritans farmed in Salem. And if they did ingested, that could have led to what we would today call uh, an LSD trip, (laughs) since ergot is the basis for LSD. But Even if that had occurred, even if the girls had acted really weird because of that, it doesn't explain the whole town's reaction, though. A later study mapped out the whole town, and when they mapped the whole town, they marked if the person where they live and if they were an accuser or if they were the accused and that sort of thing. And they found out that most of the people who were accused were on one side of a political battle that was going on. There were some people who wanted to break off and form their own settlement called New Salem. And they wanted to build their own meeting house and pay their taxes to that meeting house. And the town would lose some of their tax base. So you had other people who ended up being a lot of the accusers who didn't want them to leave. And that tends to be one of the reasons why people say it possibly happened. People took advantage of this event and they were on differing sides of a political battle. There was also an issue over the choice of ministers at the time. So it could have ended up being sort of a political thing, but we'll never really know. Now, over in Pennsylvania, if you're looking at the middle colonies, William Penn said he didn't believe in witchcraft. When asked if there might be witches in Pennsylvania too, he replied that settlers were free to fly about on broomsticks in his colony whenever they chose. So that just goes to show you how liberal the middle colonies were. They were, first and foremost, very religiously tolerant. If you recall, even at this time, 
New York had one of the most ethnically diverse populations on the continent, including the Dutch, Huguenots, Flemish, Scots, African people, uh, many different religious groups, including those of the Jewish faith. New York will boast the first synagogue in North America. You had intermingling in some areas, but these different communities tended to retain their ethnic and religious beliefs. Now, New York will grow very quickly, but most of the elite there inherited the land, and they didn't want to sell it. They wanted to rent it out to tenants, so a lot fewer actual immigrants came to New York State. The Quakers of Pennsylvania, however, would sell land to anyone who could pay for it. The area of Pennsylvania, as well as that of New Jersey and Delaware and parts of Maryland, will grow more dramatically than any other in North America. They had an annual growth rate of about 4%. Quakers will actually become a minority in Pennsylvania, even though it was a state that was set up for them. But that's okay with them. A lot of them had been persecuted for their beliefs, so they made sure that they promoted religious and ethnic pluralism. Uh, the Pennsylvania system was very socially stable, very prosperous. Land was sold in individual lots, rather than in communal parcels, as the Puritans did, so people were able to spread out more. And that individual settlement is going to provide the basic model for American expansion later on. Now, the middle colonies had slightly longer growing seasons than in New England, and they had much better soil. They tended to grow wheat and other staple crops. Individuals also had more land holdings than in New England, so they could pasture more animals than they really needed, which is another commodity. Pennsylvania will become the breadbasket of the colonies, and most of the farmers there were commercial rather than subsistence farmers, as in New England. Now, during that same time span between 1700 and 1776, you have about 800,000 immigrants coming in. Cheap land is the main reason. Now, you still have the English coming over, but more likely between 1700 and 1776, the immigrants of this time period were German or Scotch-Irish Protestants from Northern Ireland. Both of those groups are usually disliked by the immigrants who are already there, partially because they're different from the English people that are around them. But also, another group of people that will move into Pennsylvania are Native Americans, because Quakers did not believe in violence or fighting, and so a lot of Native Americans who are being pushed off of their land in other colonies will move to Pennsylvania because they felt like there they wouldn't be bothered and they wouldn't have to worry about fighting with their neighbors and having people come in and fight to take land, because in Pennsylvania, everyone was equal. Cool. I hope you enjoyed your tour of the colonial culture and the Salem witch trials. Tune in next week when we'll take a brief look at slavery in the colonies, as well as the Enlightenment and the Great Awakening. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and recommend the Magical History Tour podcast to a friend. See you next time.